Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our opening songs, plural, are Gran Torino and Tumbling Tumbleweeds, both performed by Clint Eastwood, about 50 years apart. So tenderly, your story is nothing more than what you see or what you've done or will become. Standing strong, do you belong in your skin? It's Election Day, Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Okay, so this is a repeat airing of a program that appeared BTD, or Before the Donald, in what seems decades ago, August of 2015. Tonight, while we chew our nails and continually refresh our favorite likely partisan election results site on our phones, we can still be entertained, right? To help with this, we offer Mixed Nuts, Clint Eastwood's life in the movies. Now, if you're a regular listener of Interchange over the past seven years, you might guess that the decision to play this show tonight has meaning. As Melville would say of the whale, this is the key to it all. Well, I wouldn't go that far. But to me, Clint Eastwood is simply a bad man, both in reality, in his actions as a human living his daily life, and in his movies, where he typifies something we need to be rid of as an example of masculinity. That a new world is born at dawn I'll keep rolling along I would only suggest you watch an Eastwood movie if you want to learn the worldview that has brought the very planet to the brink of collapse and catastrophe. This is the American way, the materialization of the small-minded assertions of individualism and manifest destiny for only one type of human, the monoculture man with a gun. This American, Clint Eastwood, has been giving us life, or rather death, lessons for half a century. That may seem, may be, heavy-handed, but really, we all know there's a better way. Our guest by telephone for this episode is film historian and writer Patrick McGilligan, whose unauthorized biography of Clint Eastwood, Clint, The Life and Legend, first published in 1999, was reissued and updated by Orr Books and released in 2015. McGilligan's biography of Alfred Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light, was a finalist for the Edgar Award. In addition to Hitchcock and Eastwood, he has written biographies on Robert Altman, James Cagney, George Cukor, Fritz Lang, Oscar Michaud, Jack Nicholson, and Nicholas Ray. He's also the editor of Backstory, which features interviews of Hollywood screenwriters and is published by the University of California Press. And now, on Election Day, the negative example of Clint Eastwood on Interchange on WFHB. Welcome to Interchange, Patrick McGilligan. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, Patrick, let's get this out of the way. You got sued for this book back in 1999. What happened? Well, uh, my doorbell rang, and uh, you know, news crews from all over the world came to try and interview me, and bailiffs came and presented warrants. And I think the uh, suit, which was uh, uh, a $10 million suit, really frightened uh, even bookstores from carrying the book. Um, although probably the suit was intended, you know, not just to uh, stop the book, but to get at my sources. And uh, uh, after a long period of 
of uh, uh, court hearings at which Clint was always present, and settlement uh, meetings because the judge insisted that some of the uh, uh, reasons why the book was being sued were beneath the notice of the law and insisted upon a settlement. Um, we, we settled and we agreed to take out some things in future editions. Uh, we did nothing to the uh, edition that existed, which was allowed to sell through uh, without any penalty, and we admitted no wrongdoing. Uh, you know, in a nutshell, there were maybe three major things that the book was sued on. And to give you an idea of, of uh, how, a very clear idea of what those things were, in one point, point in the book I said that uh, uh, there was an eyewitness to an altercation between Clinton and his wife and that such-and-such such happened. It's in the original edition of the book. I don't really want to repeat it because that wouldn't be very wise of me. <laughs> However, uh, Clint went and got an affidavit from that witness saying he had never spoken to me, uh, which was somewhat at odds with the uh, tape recording and transcript I had of our interview. Uh, and that kind of thing really forced the case into settlement, and the settlement was really intended on our part to uh, you know, end the litigation. Now, um, you, I think I read somewhere where you you had um, people would ask you about how people responded to you. There was a uh, at the same time Richard Schickel was that's right uh, Richard Schickel um, was also writing a biography of Clint Eastwood and official uh, biography. And uh, people would ask you you know what you were doing and if Clint knew what you were doing and if 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 you said uh, that he did, they'd often be quiet or wouldn't talk to you. Yeah, remember now I've written books about many other people, and Jack Nicholson is a good example. When I was writing my book about Jack Nicholson, people would go and ask Jack whether or not they should talk to me, and he'd say, yeah, what do I care? You know what I mean? Because really, why does he care? And then it was up to those people whether or not they talked to me. And some people in Jack's circle don't like to talk anyway, and some people in Jack's circle like to talk just to show that they're equal uh, to Jack or not intimidated by him, and a lot of people just talked. But, but nobody said, I'm not going to talk because, you know, Jack doesn't approve of your book. And that's why I wrote, which I, I never do, that's why the uh, front of the book says this biography is not authorized. I'm, I'm kind of making a joke because Richard Schickel was authorized. Uh, it's an authorized biography, and uh, consequently it's, it's a bit of a, um, let's say, happy job. Uh, by the way, a good job. I've always said I wouldn't mind doing an authorized biography because it's absolutely fair what anybody wants to say about themselves and what they want to leave out, whether it's in a biography or an autobiography. But my job then, coming along afterwards, is to talk about all the things that were left out and all the things that were kind of fudged, and really to take people you know, in, into the background of his personal life as well as his career. And I always say to people about the book that uh, even if you uh, love and admire Clint Eastwood, uh, you'll really enjoy the book because there's a tremendous amount of information in it that's missing from all other sources. And that's because Clint has very carefully, and this is a you know running motif of the book, as you know, uh, has very carefully and very tightly controlled his image and publicity and built himself up in the public eye, and there's a lot of lawsuits, not just mine, you know, in the background of that, uh, but there's also, you know, a massive publicity uh, machine and distribution machine uh, involving film festivals, museums, etc., 
Uh, and they're very invested in Clint as a moneymaker and in his image. So uh, that image has been presented. And at various times during his career, the image has shifted, you know, markedly. It shifts, you know, when, he, when his first marriage breaks up, for example, and the publicity and the image has to be adjusted. But nonetheless, he has always done his best to control it, and that includes all the people who work for him and all the people who have worked for him who might you know, in the past, they might be afraid of uh, retaliation from him if they say something to me that's out of school. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. I'm talking by telephone with Patrick McGilligan, film historian and writer whose unauthorized biography of Clint Eastwood, Clint, The Life and Legend, first published in 1990, is being reissued and updated by Or Books, that's O slash R Books, and is scheduled to hit the shelves at the end of this month. Um, the book, as I, as I said there, is updated from the original edition, and it encompasses Clint's personal life since the um, um, since the original edition, divorce, reality television, Clint's appearance before the 2012 Republican National Convention, and recent films through the success and controversy of American Sniper. So, um, the uh, I guess the question is, you know, what what drew you to to write about Clint Eastwood? Well, in all honesty, it goes back, man, you know, a couple decades now, and. Um, the truth for any of my books is the contract, meaning some editor willing to pay me the money to do the work because it does take time, it is a job, and I have to uh, eat and make a living for my family. And honestly, he was on a list of people that you know I would be interested in exploring and writing a book about for a long time. I interviewed him myself at great length in the early 1970s when I was... Uh, um, living out in Los Angeles and doing some freelancing for the Boston Globe where I used to work. So I'd followed his films, and I knew he had a fascinating career. I knew he was an interesting person to write about. I was on a left-wing film magazine in college that, that took a, uh, uh, a contrary position about Dirty Harry, both liking the film and also finding it politically very dubious in many ways. So he was he was on a list, and he kept getting passed up uh, in favor of other people, including, you know, he got passed up once in favor of Fritz Lang, which is why I wrote about Fritz Lang and not Clint Eastwood. And eventually, after my Jack Nicholson book, um, the same publisher uh, in-house, you know, was interested in doing some kind of major star after Jack, and they came around to the idea of Clint. The book was originally going to be called Clint's World to follow the... Jack Nicholson book, Jack's Life, and it's a better title because it explains a lot, including about his films. Um, and so it was, uh, he's, he was on the list for a long time, and that's the way it goes. You know, I mean, the only book I ever wrote that was, you know, came out of my own noggin uh, and as a subject before I got any publisher interested was my first one about James Cagney, which I started when I was in college. And everything else since then has been a negotiation and a, and a conversation with the publisher. Mm. Uh, let me uh, uh, talk about a couple of things you mentioned there. One, um, let's let's try to help dispel, I guess, uh, the confusion, if, you, if you're confused out there, why I call this mixed nuts. In, in your book, you, you talk about Christmas presents uh, Clint tends to give out, and uh, he, he, you mentioned that he thinks mixed nuts is a good present for, for friends. So uh, it well, seemed... uh, there's a lot in uh, my book about Clint's um, relationship to money, both both money and 
in the big sense of the money that his films bring in in Hollywood and the various ways behind the scene in which particularly in the first 25 years of his life, he was extraordinarily thrifty, uh, right down to uh, many, many uh, tie-ins with uh, brand names that would appear in his films, including a, a, a big one, for example, GM, and you can see the GM insignia uh, in close-ups, you know, in, in films like uh, Any Which Way But Loose. It figures prominently in... Uh, the Bridges of Madison County. It even shows up in Space Cowboys, and he was getting for his company, you know, dollar a year cars and truck deals, and then um, those cars and trucks sometimes went to interesting places, and uh, all kinds of things. And so he would economize uh, in various ways. He economized on his leading ladies, who were never paid the same. Now all this sort of begins to change, which is why Mixed Nuts is a slightly archaic reference. Now it all begins to change in around. 1994 with Unforgiven when all of, uh, you know, uh, the Warner Brothers' Herculean efforts to depict him as an artist abetted in various ways by the largely male fraternity of film critics and the uh, passing or demise of the Pauline Kael faction of film critics, because uh, Pauline Kael had early on targeted him as not her kind of star or filmmaker. All this begins to change, and uh, the budgets change, the stars change, the uh, lifestyle changes, and you get the you get the artistic clint. Well, I think that you you're not mixed nuts anymore. <laughs> well, maybe he's mixed nuts. Uh, so the <laughs> the. The the thing that that struck me too, uh, in particular, is that I think as as a viewer, um, Clint Eastwood has been around a, a long time, and it's uh, kind of surprising to someone um, who may have grown up in the era of uh, Tightrope or Firefox or these kinds of movies to discover uh, Rowdy on Rawhide uh, back in the in the sixties. Or is that even in, in as late as the late fifties as well? I don't remember when that started. Yeah, it starts in nineteen fifty nine, and I, I grew up watching Rawhide on television, and then you know later on I grew up and got robocalls from Clint Eastwood for Mitt Romney in my living room. So um, I've, he's been with me my entire life. Uh, and Rawhide's a good show. Uh, you know, let's say not bad considering. And um, Clint is really, you know, sort of emerging on that show, and you really see a lot of nuance and variety in his acting. And, and a big hit show, by the way, and a big hit in Japan where Clint went touring. So a big hit around the world. And a lot of, a lot of uh, people from that generation named their babies Rowdy or, or Clint. I did not, but <laughs> a lot did. And also that led to the uh, spaghetti westerns because he had the summers off and the job offer was made to his his star, the star of the show, um, who was Eric Fleming, who was playing Gil Favor, who was playing uh, Eric Fleming. No, Eric Fleming who was playing Gil Favor, who turned it down because he didn't want to work in a nothing, you know, Italian western shot in Spain over the summer. And Clint, who loves an excuse to stay away from home uh, and travel and work, you know, took it, and uh, that was the other side of his personality, because Rowdy is sweet, sensitive, vulnerable, thoughtful, uh, charming, and then we get the man with no name. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to sort of reflect back on that personality after the, the decades of of the man with no name. You spoke of 
Pauline Kael before. There's a um, there was a 1977 British uh, BBC documentary that that has her as one of the the people they interview on. And I'm, I'll play a clip of what she said about uh, what I think it was about uh, Dirty Harry, but it might have been about uh, the, the the Western uh, character as well. Uh, let, let me see if I can put it this way: the Bogart hero felt pain. When he killed someone, he suffered from it. And he was a man of experience. You saw the lines of pain on his face. The Eastwood character does express, uh, well, how can I put it, a new emotionlessness about killing that people feel is the truth now. It used to be that, that the man who stood for high principles uh, was the man who was also the best shot. Now we no longer believe that in order to be a great shot, you need principles at all. And Clint Eastwood is a totally unprincipled killer. <laughs> you can, that pretty much lays it on the table there. Yeah, you know, um, I'm, I'm not in the Pauline Kell faction. I, I'd be in the Andrew Sarris faction, meaning I'm an auteurist. And, and if nothing else, my book about Clint is a tourist in looking at his career. But um, I, I wrote about her in my other books, too, and also about Andrew Sarris, because they were very influential in how other critics followed them in various ways. And I wasn't too favorable to Pauline Kell in my Robert Allman book, but she, she phoned one day, the only time I've ever had any contact with her, after my uh, Clint book came out, and someone had sent it to her, one of, one of uh, the critics that she had mentored or helped to mentor, and um, she said, first she said, I, didn't, I don't take too kindly to everything you've written about me, but she said, you've got this person, you know, exactly right. Um, you, I know this kind of person, and you've got him perfectly set down on paper, which made me very proud because uh, what she did say about Clint, you know, starting at, uh, with Dirty Harry and what you then ran a clip of, um, I wholeheartedly endorse. Uh, I mean, I think all the way up through to Grand Torino, which we could spend a whole hour talking about, but certainly American Sniper. You know, Gail Collins wrote about it in the New York Times as saying, you know, above all, it's a pro-gun film. And, and that's what it is, above all, you know, and that's what Clint's career has been, above all, you know, uh, a pro-gun film. And, and the idea that a man's got to do what he's got to do, and he's got to get the gun out and walk into the room and start shooting, and so what if a few innocent people or some members of the gang aren't completely as culpable as everybody else in the gang, who, who cares if it's an entire country? That's not the point. You know, the point is it's pro-gun, it's pro-America, and it's pro this historical view, which both in Westerns and in crime cop vigilante films, you know, Clint has specialized in. He's done other things, but this is what he's specialized in. And then he brings that persona into other things that he does. It's time for a break. You're listening to Mixed Nuts, Clint Eastwood's Life in the Movies. My guest tonight is film historian and writer Patrick McGilligan, whose unauthorized biography of Clint Eastwood, Clint, the Life and Legend, first published in 1999, is being reissued and updated by OR, or excuse me, OR Books, and is scheduled to hit the shelves at the end of the month. At the break, you're going to hear Clint singing Don't Fence Me In off the album Clint Sings Cowboy Songs, recorded during his rowdy years on the television show Rawhide. Stay with us for more interchange on WFHB. Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above Don't fence me in, 
Let me ride through the wide open country that I love Don't fence me in Let me be by myself in the evening breeze Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees Send me off forever but I ask you please Don't fence me in Just turn me loose Let me saddle my old saddle Underneath the western sky On my cayuse Let me wander over yonder Till I see the mountains high I want to ride to the ridge Where the west commences Gaze at the moon Till I lose my senses Can't stand hobbles and I can't stand fences Don't fence me in That was Clint Eastwood singing Don't Fence Me In off the album Clint Sings Cowboy Songs. Um, Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. This is WFHB. Tonight's program, Mixed Nuts, Clint Eastwood's Life in the Movies. Uh, I'm joined by uh, unauthorized biography, biographer Patrick McGilligan, whose book Clint, The Life and Legend has been updated through American Sniper and will be published by Orr Books at the end of this month. Clint sure likes to sing, Patrick. He knows he's not great, right? Well, I think, you know, it's one of the things that softens him for us in his eyes, meaning us, everyone. Uh, He loves to sing. He wishes he could have been a singer, maybe. He tried to be a singer. He's in musicals, everything from Paint Your Wagon to later on Honky Tonk Man, one of those kind of forgettable, important movies in the early 1980s that you were referring to. All the way up through Jersey Boys, you know, the kind of thing that everyone said, oh, it's really outside of his normal you know, uh, a strong suit, but actually uh, he is very, very interested in music, and then, of course, he ends up composing songs for his films later on as he gets more, uh, I would say, confidence, power, and artistic reaffirmation, and then that becomes entire soundtracks, usually of sort of moody, <laughs> tinkling piano, you know, scores of the sort that uh, you really wouldn't want to listen to if you were sleepy. And uh, finally, you know, culminating in this, this, this song you played from Gran Torino, which, which really is kind of, um, you know, it's kind of like forgivable hubris, you know. But on the other hand, it softens him for us. This idea that he loves jazz, you know. By the way, he loved country and western. You were playing it, and then he has a lot of country and western scores in the 1970s and 1980s in the background of his films, too. But that he loves music and that he is a kind of wannabe musician composer. Yeah, he's not really a killer. He's a songwriter. Yeah, he well, and I mean, I'm not sure he's really a songwriter because all of the songs are co-written, you know, someone else is helping out in various ways, and usually behind the scenes with the score is someone who's helping out in various ways, too. I mean, he's not an orchestrator, and he's not someone who I don't believe puts notes down on paper without the help of someone else or a computer, but he has musical ideas, and he has written scores to, you know, starting in the post-2000 run-up of his you know, sort of big productions, Mystic River, Million Dollar Baby, et cetera, 
all these films which came after the original edition of my book and which gave me a good reason to go back and look at what he had done in the meantime, that he starts composing pretty prolifically, and it's interesting music, you know, I mean, if it's reflecting anything about him, it's, you know, it's really, really not happy music, and it's not really upbeat music, and it's, it's usually dark, moody, as I say, sort of piano tinkling. Well, um, a, the music does seem to to sort of reflect where he is at the time as well. As you say, it does seem like his movies do the same thing. They they kind of run through his life. I think it's part of why uh, I, I titled the, the, uh, his life in the movies. And in some sense, uh, Life and Legend is the, the title of your book. You don't really do a lot of... Um, I guess exegesis or uh, with the movies, you, you're you're doing more work on on what what happened in in the in the time that the movies were made, how they were made, who was in them, uh, how the um, uh, the production company was formed, how Clint manages that production company, things like that. Uh, the the focus of your book is as much how Clint works as anything else. Yes, but I mean, if you're an auteurist, you want to know. If you're not a tourist, then you believe a person's body of work reflects their characters and values and ideas and all the way down to, like, you know, small nuances, et cetera, and you find a pattern of that over a long period of time, and you follow that pattern, whether it varies, shifts, grows, diminishes, whatever, and then you find aberrations in it or interesting discrepancies, et cetera. I mean, I think one of the things you find when you look closely at Clint's career all the way back before Rawhide, uh, when he was a uh, bit player at Universal, is that, uh, first of all, he's, he's a tremendous salesman of himself on and off screen, uh, that this persona that we all know, or that we all think we know, let us put it let's put it that way, and that we feel familiar with and comfortable about. You know, he's been selling that very, very well for a long time, uh, that he is a guy who, who grows evolves, learns, expands, but at the same time, all the way back at the beginning, you can see seeds of the same Clint, you know, the same old Clint, you know, then and now. And so that's what's fascinating about him and about, you know, anybody with a tremendous body of work over a long period of time who controls his body of work, which Clint really has, is, is both the consistency and the constancy as well as the permutations and the change. Well, I think that's a, that's a, a really interesting point as well. I, I had found also online uh, a 1970 interview at home with Clint Eastwood, and a lot of what he says in that interview and a lot of the questions asked seem to me pretty pertinent for how we think of him even today. Um, so I thought maybe I'd try to interview Clint Eastwood here as well. So uh, in, in maybe in the same way that Clint Eastwood interviewed or spoke with Barack Obama at the 2012 Republican convention. I've got uh, Clint Eastwood over on the other side of the studio, and I'm going to ask him a couple questions. So the first question, Clint, is uh, are you a Hollywood type? I think out of the last six or seven years, I've, I've done about half of one picture and a quarter of another in Hollywood. Uh, most of my time has been, uh, I guess because I started out uh, on the international market, uh, I was lucky with some European films. Uh, I've just continued to, to travel a lot in most of my work. I was in uh, Austria for Where He Goes There, and then uh, um, Two Meals for Sister Sarah we did down in uh, Mexico, and I just got back from doing Kelly's Warriors in uh, Yugoslavia. You can hear Clint Eastwood sort of framing himself there. He's uh, He works in an international market. He doesn't make Hollywood films. Clint as a product in some sense there. 
Yeah, and uh, he's doing a good job of it. And I'm not sure, you know, whether I think of him as a Hollywood type, really. I mean, I think of him as a type of male, uh, you know, a type of guy, and also um, a type of, of uh, personality. Uh, the closest thing, you know, when he came up in the business, he looked a lot like all the other people that were in the group photograph at the Universal Talent School, which were young, hunky guys with big shocks of hair, some of them who later turned out to be gay or had no careers, some of whom turned out to have very good careers, but only one of whom turned out to have, you know, an astronomical career, and that was Clint. And I think it's because he believed in himself, and he believes in what he says. So that explanation of himself not being a Hollywood type, he's a composite of a type, and I mean, I think he created a Hollywood type, meaning I think when we see Mel Gibson and Lethal Weapon or Bruce Willis in the Die Hard films, you know, they're following a type. Now, the type really pre-existed before Clint, and uh, Pauline Kael does a wonderful job of uh, bringing in Humphrey Bogart, who she said, you know, we feel his anguish when he has to shoot people by the lines on his face or by the way his face looks, and we don't really feel you know, quite the same way with Clint, because actually what he's almost always doing is getting some kind of revenge or vengeance, you know, which is built into the plot of so many of his films. Often it's a vengeance or revenge over rape um, or prostitutes, especially in his westerns, but also in his crime films. And sometimes it's revenge against the law, because the law isn't, you know, law isn't living up to its standards, so he has to step in. But, so it's a type that preexisted, and he adds inflection to it, and now we think of it as, you know, we'd have to think of it as a Clint Eastwood type. Is someone going to come along afterwards and, and do it better or differently? Um, perhaps, and, and it usually happens that, that that is the case. But I think it's fair to say that he, he was not a type or that he brought his own inflections to the type, because early on in his career, he was being compared to John Wayne all the time largely because of the Westerns and the ways in which he transgressed in the Westerns that John Wayne would never do. But, you know, he, he didn't like that comparison because he said to himself and to the press, I am a different type. I don't think there's any question um, in my mind anyway that Clint is not only a type and in, in not necessarily a Hollywood type, but also extremely individual. And it's that combination that makes him uh, so fascinating, as possibly as well as so successful. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. I'm talking by telephone with Patrick McGilligan, film historian and writer, uh, unauthorized biographer of Clint Eastwood, whose book Clint, The Life and Legend was first published in 1999, is, is being reissued uh, at the end of this month by Orr Books. Um, that's um, the type of, of actor Clint is, the type of person he is. It's an image, as you say many times before. Perhaps he's a genius of his image, but one of the things you mentioned there, too, is about uh, the sort of iconic uh, spaghetti western cowboy that he starts out being in, in, in some sense as um, maybe not antagonistic, but to, to be clearly separated from the westerns of the time. Uh, maybe that's what Pauline Kael was talking about as well, the, the sort of um, robotic type violence. And, and so if I can turn to Clint one more time. Clint, you become an uh, icon with spaghetti westerns, the ones that you did with Sergio Leone. Um, you're silent and malevolent, perhaps an anti-hero cowboy uh, how does that appeal to audience? Well, I think the uh, I think it's probably the mystique more than anything. Uh, 
I mean, the mystique of the hero that doesn't talk too much, you don't know too much about him, it, it, it stirs the uh, imagination of the audience. And the audience can, uh, can sort of imagine something about his background, and they also can identify with him and escape with him. Uh, the men uh, can think that's the way I'd like to be. Of course, the one thing about the West, uh, the Western, it's probably the last era as we know it, where man sort of was control of his own destiny. You know, he didn't rely on society to come to his aid. And um, I think it's just the escapism of it all. Well, that's also a pretty, uh, pretty good answer, a pretty interesting answer. Interesting, um, and I think telling in a lot of respects. Uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't know where to start with it. It's interesting that he talks about the West as being, you know, th- this era before society, you know, can take care of you, which I think, you know, he means government, et cetera. Yeah. But, um, and he's often playing, you know, in, in his own Westerns, you know, sheriffs or, or uh, marshals or ex, uh, ex-bounty hunters or something, you know, connected, loosely connected with the law. The Sergio Leone Westerns were not his creation at all. I mean, he, he lent himself to them and, and wholeheartedly, and, and they would be uh, not as good without him. But that kind of comic book Wild West, which is what it is, um, I, I like I like those films, um, even though uh, they can parts of them are pretty hard to take. Uh, I love the good, bad, and the ugly. And if it was showing on a huge theater nearby, I'd go to see it. I don't like to watch it on the TV screen because it's it's diminished. But Clint is great in it because he's never so great as when he has good actors in the same scene or great actors in the same scene. And Lee Van Cleef and Eli Wallach are are wonderful as <laughs> the bad and the ugly. And um, uh, and then he's never so good as when he's directed by someone from outside his his own little club. Um, and Sergio Leone was not in the Clint fan club. Um, eventually he was, but then it was they were not going to make any more films together because Clint, especially after about the early to mid-1970s, starts to only work with his, you know, people in his own employ, assistant directors, stunt buddies, and there's a series of situations where people get replaced on films after doing a lot of pre-production and some shooting, like Phil Kaufman uh, on The Outlaw Josie Wales, which precipitates an entire rule from, uh, you know, the Directors Guild, uh, because producers shouldn't be allowed to fire a director at the last minute and then take over the pre-production, as Clint did in that case, uh, known informally as the Clint Eastwood rule. But the but the westerns themselves that Leone did were very very original for their time, and they actually you know created this helped to create this genre of spaghetti westerns. Now what Clint brings back into his own work is not the visual style of Leone really. And it's some aspects of the subject matter. I talked about this whole, like, preoccupation with rape and prostitutes in his work, um, which is pretty darn frequent, so you can't really ignore it. Um, but it's, it's, I think, above all, this one word that he used uh, in the interview, the mystique. So he brings back the mystique and the mythology of the, you know, of the, the uh, anti-hero who stands up for the town or stands up for a group of people, stands up for the prostitutes and unforgiven, even though he's being paid money. Um, you know, he, he brings back the, that kind of mystique that is really very strong in those Leone films, which, as I say, I like. But, you know, I don't like too many westerns, and I prefer Blazing Saddles to most of John Ford's westerns, so you can see where I'm coming from. I like them because they are comic books. 
they don't pretend to be real, and if anybody thinks they're real, you know, they really should get some more context in their thinking. You, know, you talked about uh, uh, rape, and again, we can't, like you say, we can't really escape it. And and um, the, the again, this 1970 interview uh, broaches that subject somewhat as well. So let's ask Clint again. Uh, you're hard or tough on the ladies, Clint. Is that your version of romance? Um, though, though, when you come to th- you think back on it, a lot of the men who were rough on the ladies over the years have become extremely popular. The Cagneys and the Bogarts and the and some of these guys, but um, uh, I think uh, the ladies were always out of line or it was an accidental roughness, one or the other. Oh, you got to love that. The ladies were out of line. Um, the, 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 that actually brings to mind, um, was it High Plains Drifter? Um, where there's a, a very explicit rape scene in that particular movie? Yeah, um, when Clint uh, is... Uh, uh, you know, he's, again, a mysterious stranger who's taking vengeance on a town, and he starts out by raping a woman who later turns out to have been part of what caused his anguish in the backstory. And, and um, a very, very brutal scene. Um, later on in, in Sudden Impact, which is an entire film about uh, getting revenge on, a, on, a, on rapists with Sandra Locke as the Avenger, but Dirty Harry as her, like, uh, helper and complicit supporter throughout, you know, he punches a woman in the face um, who's a lesbian, and and she's revealed to be, you know, complicit with this gang that indulged in the rape, uh, so that all this is forgiven, you know, by these circumstances. Uh, but it's kind of, you know, when it's recurrent plotting, which it is in his films, and it's a recurrent motif, uh, he's, he's played it both ways. Um, because later on, mostly he's the avenger of rapes, you know. Um, and, and later on in his career, he makes uh, films which are very sympathetic to gay people, like J. J. Edgar, if you want to call J. Edgar Hoover gay, which I think might be a, might be a stretch. But he makes uh, films that are sympathetic, so he, he kind of moves on in that area, too. But he has a preoccupation. I think, look, the way to think about it is Clint thinks of himself, he defines himself, and he presents himself in a particular masculine way. And one of the ways he has to do that is to present himself both in what you would consider to be violent or you know, masculine, challenging situations, but also with women constantly. Um, so that he's always ending up in bed with women who, you know, usually go up to his shoulder when they stand next to him uh, in his scenes, in his films, um, and, uh, and with gay people so that he's, you know, he's manly and they're gay. You know, there's a couple of scenes in Dirty Harry, which is a very complicated film, uh, but, you know, one, one well-known scene is when he goes into uh, the park and he, he's running after uh, Scorpio and he comes across the path of a gay hustler, and he treats him really, really uh, shabbily. Um, there's scenes like that uh, in several Clint Eastwood films in the 1970s. So I think really, you know, he read the market later on. Uh, possibly he himself, you know, uh, expanded his thinking in some ways. I don't think too much because we know he's, you know, he's still a Republican. So he might be a Republican for gay marriage like Dick Cheney is. Or at least gay marriage. For, I don't know. Dick Cheney is for all gay marriage, or just for his his daughter. But uh, but 
he so he, he in incremental ways he might move on, change, shift. This is what's interesting for an autoist. But he defines his masculinity in violent situations as a revenger and avenger, um, as a as a uh, the, the lone guy who will stand up to evil when the rest of the community or the government proves craven. Uh, and yet all the women think he's you know really really handsome because uh, he always likes to you know strip and go into the bathtub and show us himself with his shirt off and film after film besides. Uh, so in various ways, he's just presenting himself, you know, his masculine image. It's time for a break. You're listening to Mixed Nuts, Clint Eastwood's Life in the Movies. My guest tonight is film historian and writer Patrick McGilligan, whose unauthorized biography of Clint uh, Eastwood, Clint the Life and Legend, first published in 1999, is being reissued and updated by Orr Books and is scheduled to hit the shelves at the end of this month. At the break, you're going to hear Clint singing, or rather talking with, uh, Merle Haggard on the song Barroom Buddies, which appeared on the movie soundtrack to Bronco Billy. Hey, I want to sing till the feeling gets right. Well, let's harmonize, we'll be dynamite. I hold the high notes, I've done it for years Good deal, old buddy, and I'll pour the beers There's always some lady alone at the bar Yeah, and you always let her know just who you are I know a couple gals that we can call Damn, they'll shake the picture right off of you all We're barroom buddies and that's the best kind Nobody fools with a buddy of mine I laugh when you're happy And I cry when you're blue Barroom buddies and we're doing fine So call me another, we got nothing but time Oh, chug a lug a luggin' Barroom buddy of Trying to turn out the lights Well, maybe it is time we call it a night Hell, we wake up the roosters If we drank them real slow Well, let's have the double and a six-pack to go We're that was Clint Eastwood with Merle Haggard, or rather Merle Haggard with Clint Eastwood in Barroom Buddies. Um, so uh, we went to the break talking about Clint Eastwood's, uh, I don't know if it's a proclivity or there's, there's seriously something going on there in terms of his, uh, his movies and, and the um, showing of rape scenes or having to deal with rape scenes in the movies. There's a line of dialogue in the Iger Sanction that may have been intended to be... Um, something. I'm not sure exactly what, uh, but it says, you never know. Sometimes people do things they thought they'd never do again, like rape, for instance. I thought I'd given up rape, but I've changed my mind. Um, I saw this uh, This actually uh, as a list of 14 movies uh, on a blog blog post, actually, selectedintelligence.com is where I found it. There are 14 movies listed here for a few dollars more. Two Mules for Sister Sarah, Play Misty for Me, High Plains Drifter, Outlaw Josie Wales, Gauntlet, Sudden Impact, Tightrope, The Rookie, Unforgiven, A Perfect World, Absolute Power, Mystic River, Gran Torino, all have some kind of rape scene in them. Yeah, and this 
this is uh, you skipped all the Leone films, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did actually, and uh, I guess the blogger did. I think that's where he, I think that's where he picks up this uh, conceit. Um, I mean, he's very shrewd at picking up what works for him, and uh, he's very shrewd at incorporating things into his work. But this particular preoccupation is really, really um, unique, uh, and uh, it, you know, it does require some. Uh, explaining, and it does require some understanding. Uh, there are feminist film scholars uh, who have written about it, you know, and talked about his his anguish uh, and trauma uh, in High Plains Drifter, which drives him to rape. <laughs> I want that person as, as my, you know, defense witness, you know, if I'm ever pulled into a court, because uh, that's a very, you know, contorted thinking, if you ask me. I, I you know, I think it's because, for, look, it's mostly cheap drama, uh, to have, you know, uh, a young, innocent uh, woman or, in many cases, a prostitute or, in the case of Gran Torino, this next-door neighbor girl. You know, it's, very, it's cheap drama to have them uh, raped or nearly raped and then have him be the heroic avenger who kills or arranges for the demise of the, of the rapist. And he builds entire movies around that. And I just find it to be, uh, it's not comic book. Uh, because it's almost often it's often grounded in in some kind of idea of reality, or at least that he's presenting some kind of idea of reality. And I find it to be uh, cheap sensationalism. Um, never, never treat it uh, seriously um, as an issue per se, uh, but is just used as a plot device to make him look more manly and heroic. And uh, that's what a lot of the films that he has made are about, you know, about how handsome he is and how manly he is and how, how, uh, how important he is and how heroic, whether you're talking in mythological terms, you know, like the Westerns, uh, or whether you're talking about even about Gran Torino, where at every stage of the plot, he escalates the plot. He brings guns into the story. Uh, you know, the Hmong gang, you know, they might have gone home and said, that guy's crazy. He's got a shotgun. Maybe we should be getting some guns, you know? He, so he escalates the violence, and then he has this kind of Western kind of showdown at the end. By the way, we already know he's dying and he has cancer because there's been many scenes referencing it early, early on. It's a very predictable, you know, uh, end of the story. And then he pretends, you know, to to be shooting them, so they'll pull out their guns and kill him. So he's avenged the girl. He's made their life, her life safe. He sent his entire gang into a paroxysm of killing. Um, we don't know if there's any difference between one member of the gang and the other, just like the people that are in the saloon at the end of Unforgiven or all the people at the end of Chris Kyle's Bullets in American Sniper. We don't know. They're all just... They're all just villains. You know, villain number one, villain number two is probably what the script says, you know. So uh, that's why I say Gail Collins got it right when she said these are pro-gun movies. In a, in a kind of, uh, that I think is a, is a serious underlying theme of all of his work, and it's not much, it's not very uh, serious really, except that it's worked. You know, it's worked in a lot of ways. We see its proliferation in other films. We see its acceptance in culture. Um, and, uh, you know, he can get away with making films like American Sniper that without people challenging its credibility on all kinds of levels. Well, people did, but, you know, he got away with it and got rich. It's interesting to note that uh, I think uh, Dirty Harry in particular 
sort of approaches how, in, in, to me, in, in the very first scene, you've got Scorpio, who is uh, go, uh, the murderer in the movie, the, the, the psychopath in the movie. He begins with uh, taking that high-powered rifle, uh, a.k.a. Chris Kyle, right? Uh, we have a high-powered uh, yeah, sharpshooter. shooting here. a nubile, you know, uh, yeah. young uh, woman, uh, you know, so that we can see her her body splayed in front of us on the screen. Right, we get to see the uh, the, the sort of mixture there of the of the gun culture with the uh, the sexism or, or rape culture. Even uh, the gun is yeah, sort of a, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And the movie is interesting because it was directed by Don Siegel, who's more intelligent as a filmmaker than a lot of other people Clint has worked with, including somebody else that he worked with very closely over and over again. And it's written very interestingly. So the movie's kind of dynamic, even though it's very problematic. And yes, he sets it up. He sets Dirty Harry up that way. So he has taken this idea from from uh, you know Sergio Leone and the Westerns, and he's transposed it into a much more prevalent strain of his work because he actually after you know the 1980s only does two more westerns you know so far pal rider and unforgiven and he makes vigilante cop movies you know over and over again sometimes he's called dirty harry and sometimes he's called something else but they're vigilante cop movies where he has to take justice into his own hands just like he does at the end of grand torino even though he's not playing a cop there either so uh he uses what I would consider to be kind of cheap, sensationalistic, uh, you know, sexual imagery, uh, and whether it's prostitutes or it's just a, a dead young woman, you know, shot by a sniper from a rooftop, uh, to to create this this uh, scenario in which he will be like a triumphant avenging angel. The villain, of course, is a complete psycho who, about whom we know nothing. Was he abused as a child? Unimportant. Well, he's a liberal. That's you know, the issue. Is he a Vietnam vet? Unimportant. He's a liberal. He's a liberal, yes. He's, he, a liberal he's played for a liberal the whole time, right? He's wearing a peace, peace symbols. He's got long hair. He's, he's, Absolutely. He's, he's kind of a hippie, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, he is. And it's the anti-Miranda movie, right, of the period where, where you... Miranda movie, and yeah. it's very explicit about that. And I think this is one of the ways in which Clint has, uh, can't escape the fact that he's a conservative, and, and he doesn't try to, but he, he shrewdly integrates it into his work. I, you know, I, I said somewhere, think of it as a, uh, America as a red state, blue state, you know, film-going nation, not everybody goes to see Clint Eastwood movies, you know, but we're a pretty evenly divided nation, and if you can get half the audience and then others to cross over repeatedly for all kinds of reasons, sometimes just out of curiosity, then you've got a pretty good career going, and he, he speaks to his audience, they love it, and then he gets other people, you know, time and again for other things that are outside of his, like, usual framework. I think Meryl Streep, when she made Bridges of Madison County, was quoted as saying she didn't think she had ever seen a Clint Eastwood before, movie before, uh, uh, other than In the Line of Fire, which had just been a big hit the year before and was the kind of movie she might have seen because it was made by a German director and it had really interesting actors in it besides Clint. And it's pretty good. <laughs> Even though, again, he has to show that he runs, no matter what age he is, he runs harder than anybody, and he can punch young people in the face and all of this, you know. All of this, basically, I would consider to be cheap, 
melodramatic nonsense that he has really kind of mastered. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. I'm talking by telephone with Patrick McGilligan, film historian and writer, who's written a book uh, uh, about Clint Eastwood, a biography of Clint Eastwood. Clint, The Life and Legend, first published in 99, uh, 1999. It's being re- reissued and updated by Orr Books and is scheduled to hit the shelves at the end of the month. Uh, you know, uh, I, I did pre uh, promo the program talking saying we talk about Unforgiven, the American Sniper. We touched on them a little bit. It's it's um, going back and looking at Clint Eastwood movies. I don't think there's like I don't think you need to talk about the new movies if you talk about the old movies in some sense, right? I don't know if there is a real sense that there is any change in what has come recently. Even to say these are different kinds of movies with different kinds of politics, um, I think they are similar. I was oh, I, yeah. I think yeah. Uh, Unforgiven and American Sniper are very similar to Dirty Harry. I mean, Dirty Harry. Uh, you know, he walks into a crowd chewing a hot dog, shooting his gun at a careening getaway car, and uh, all sorts of people are screaming on the sidelines, and cars are crashing and everything, and then he walks up to the black guy, who's robber, who's squirming on the sidewalk and holds a gun at his face and says, do you feel lucky, punk? Well, look, I don't think you could do that today for very good reasons, because I think we recognize that that's kind of crazy, and that innocent people might have gotten killed on the sidelines, and we're never even going to hear about it, although the script in the case of the first Dirty Harry kind of cleans it up. But like I say, Clint is perfectly willing in his films, and this is one very consistent aspect of his films from the late late 1960s until now. He wants his hero to avenge something um, that the audience is going to approve of so he doesn't mind if they you know if all kinds of illogic occurs and that his character walks into a saloon with I don't know I think it's like a dozen gunslingers um, and guns go off like crazy and everybody gets killed and he walks off without a scratch and we're supposed to feel that he somehow feels bad about that, you know, according to the critics who really admire the film. That's unforgiven. And I think he could have, you know, if he had been a more adventurous actor at an earlier stage of his career and the Chris Kyle story was being told then, uh, he could have played Chris Kyle. Uh, and he would have played it exactly the same as Bradley Cooper, which is without n- any emotional arc. <laughs> you know, never, never an emotional breakthrough or a change in who he was accept him for what he is, a man's got to do what he's got to do, a man and his gun, I mean, that's the story. That's the buddy-buddy, the guy and his gun. Very simple story, too. It was surprising to me that it got... um that it got people riled up very much. Uh, it, it didn't seem like it was anything more than that simplistic a story, which is one guy who can um, shoot really well and then shoots people. But there's no sense that killing 160 people in Iraq does any good in the, in the movie in particular, other than saying you protected certain people. There's no sense that this, this is part of a larger perspective. No, it's not even a larger perspective on the person. You know, uh, some people wrote that if he had made the movie about the actual Chris Kyle, who we know to have been really a much more dubious character, um, and and not just the most perfect shot of all time who killed all these 
you know, people, some of whom, for all we know, were innocent, and there could have been other innocent victims that are left out of the story. You know, if he had made the story about that kind of guy who is more like, let us say, um, Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull, a guy you can't like, you know, a guy who you can't admire, and yet he's being put through this, you know, by his own uh, fate and by the U.S. government and by the kind of person he was raised to be. But he couldn't do all of that because, first of all, it would be antithetical to who he, Clint, is. And secondly, this is one of the values of biography. If you look at the circumstances of how that film got made and why certain decisions were made, it, it involved a lot of, a lot of uh, both happenstance and um, involvement of the family in order to negate certain aspects of the story that were nonetheless factual and true. Uh, and then in various ways, you see this in Clint film after Clint film, and I write about this in the book. His his detachment from the script, meaning his ability, his his willingness to let the script be, let it be what it is. He inherited it. He's going to make it. It's fine with him. He doesn't want to find. He doesn't want to go back and put nuance and detail into the script because that's not what his films are about. Well, those are very important points, and I think the I, I would like to make the uh, point for you as well. In in terms of your book, the the book does does I think a really interesting job of showing the ways in which Clint Eastwood, as a person in his business dealings, uh, as a movie image maker or maker of his own image, of a maker of movies, um, is is pretty. I, I don't know if ruthless is the word, but he, he just kind of. They come and people come and go as they please him or don't please him. It's a big part of your book. Well, that was a big difference between him and Jack, too. I mean, because with Jack, Jack knew everybody he knew in 1956, 57, and they all still loved Jack. And if they had a big argument with him or really hadn't spoken to him for years, they still wished him the best and loved him and wanted to make up to him. And Jack is big at making up with people because he has this sort of Catholic you know, uh, uh, apology and redemption idea that's really ingrained in his soul. Um, I didn't find any of that with the people, you know, in Clint Eastwood's career, and many of these scriptwriters are first-time scriptwriters, and uh, if you go back and you look at the credits of his writers and directors, you know, many, many, many who were part of that close Mel Peso company, they've disappeared. Uh, that's all the time we have tonight, Patrick. Thanks for talking with us. Um, um, I, uh, let me ask you real quick. Can you name what your favorite movie is, uh, Clint Eastwood, or one of your most likable Clint Eastwood movies? I've said, <laughs> I've said the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I'm not kidding. And I do like Bronco okay. Billy also. I love Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. I think it really is a movie that defies categorization. And I love Jeff Bridges in it, who was nominated for an Oscar. And, and Clint was not often in scenes with people of the caliber of Jeff Bridges in the first 25 years of his career. And, and they have great scenes together. Great. Uh, because Clint rises, uh, rises to the challenge of a good script um, and a good actor in the same scene and someone directing him for the first time, Michael Cimino, who was outside the club. Thanks, Patrick. That's all the time we have for our examination of the films and life of Clint Eastwood with biographer and film historian Patrick McGilligan, whose book, Clint, The Life and Legend, has been updated through American Sniper and will be published by Orr Books at the end of this month. Thanks for being with us tonight, Patrick. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Your lips drip with lies and they're slipping around in your eyes And your smile charms me right out of my shoes There's no sweeter cheater 
than you. That's our show. We'll close with Clint Eastwood singing There's No Sweeter Cheater Than You, Pot, Meat, Kettle. This has been a repeat airing of Mixed Nuts, Clint Eastwood's life in the movies, or as I like to call it, an example of the wrong way to be a human. Our audio engineer for this program was Jonathan Richardson. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm Doug Storm. I produced this episode of Interchange. Kate Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. There's no sweeter cheater than you. I have to be crazy to keep coming back and sharing you with somebody new. You're the only one that can make me feel good by feeling blue. There's no sweeter cheater than you. There's no sweeter cheater than you.